Welcome to the Climate Justice Central podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm Sharon Munjinjema. I'm joined today by my co-host, Yokani Oliveira. I am from Namibia, which is a desert country in southwest Africa, situated next to the cold southeast Atlantic Ocean. My colleague Sharon is from Zimbabwe, a landlocked country best known for the Zambezi River to the north, which flows into the stunning Victoria Falls. Before we get into today's conversation, it's worth mentioning that climate journalism for Namibia and Zimbabwe is crucial in today's time. Both these countries have been affected by droughts which have been a serious threat to wildlife, agricultural land and water resources. In 2019, the most disastrous event that impacted Zimbabwe was tropical cyclone Idai, which left hundreds of thousands displaced and hundreds more dead. We're going to have a conversation about climate images and their role in climate change communication with our guest, Professor Birgit Schneider from the University of Potsdam. Professor Schneider holds a PhD in cultural studies. She lectures media ecology at Potsdam University. She studied art history, media studies, philosophy and media art. She also focuses on climate change cartography and she was also part of a search engine project. Welcome to the podcast, Professor. Thank you for having me here. Briefly tell us more about this, please. So I started looking into climate change images and cartography 10 years from now in 2009, even more than 10 years. And I was trained as an art historian. Of course, we normally look at paintings and other iconographies, but I wanted to adapt this perspective to images we normally don't pay a lot of attention because they're aesthetically, they are not very pleasing, they are very abstract. And so I was fascinated by the fact back then, actually, that without climate visualization, without cartography, actually, science wouldn't have been able to do the prognosis that actually something is happening 40, 50 years back from today. And we wouldn't have known about climate change, uh, human anthropogenic climate change happening. Human anthropogenic climate change refers to human activities such as mining and industrial waste that directly or indirectly impact the environment. If you can, with an example, draw a specific link to cartography and climate change. So I was starting to also look into the topic from a historical perspective and um, I was fascinated that only 200 years ago, the first climate map uh, was drawn in science. And this was done by Alexander von Humboldt. He's a a German researcher. And he put together all the measurement series he could get by this time. And there were not like large measurement networks back then. He only had 58 measurement stations for the Northern Hemisphere. And so he drew some lines on a map to show where exactly the climate zones would be located. A climate zone is a global region with a distinct climate. For example, the polar zones, which include the North and South Poles, is categorized by floating ice and very cold weather conditions. 
Weather refers to short-term atmospheric conditions, whereas climate is the average daily weather of a specific area over a long period of time. And so this, we can call this image to be the first image of climate zones. And until today, it's still the same method how climate scientists draw temperature zones, for example, and also future temperature zones on world maps. Yeah. All right, so let me take you back to some years ago. You went from graphic designing at a project office to cartography and climate change. How did this happen? Tell us the journey that you walked mm -hmm. from that time to where you are now. So before I started to study art history, I did political sciences. So I have always been interested in politics, but also I have always been like from really early years on interested in environmental issues. And after I finished my exams at university, I actually worked as a graphic designer together with some colleagues and friends. So I have a lot of experiences with dealing with images. Photoshop, for example, was my daily basis. And in a way, I got an expertise in uh, rendering topics aesthetically tangible in doing this. And this experience of applying media and applying aesthetic strategies to many topics is something that I always kept in mind because I know about the problems and the, the struggles of um, practitioners who have to make something tangible by the aids of images, for example. My PhD was related to a very different topic, but after my PhD, I started to think about how can I use art history in more political ways, and how can I adapt art history to a contemporary topic like climate change? So what was the actual motivation that made you feel like I need to get into climate change issues and cartography? So in a way, it was a mixture of my fascination about cartography. I have been studying technical images for a very long time, also during my PhD already. And so I have always been more fascinated by cartography and very technical images, maybe even more than art historian images. And so I started to put these things together, my concern about climate change happening. And I have been concerned since a very young age. I still remember mm. when I heard of climate change for the very first time. I was 17 years old and I think I read about it in the newspapers, maybe in 1991. And me and my friends, we were talking about it and, and we had a really untypical warm February. And so my friends and I, we slept outside, actually, which normally you wouldn't be able to do in Germany in a February. But it was so warm, it was like 17 degrees or something. And we felt really a big concern because this climate was not at all what we were used to experience in our short lives. And of course, back then, nobody could say this is climate change because it was just local weather. Still, we felt this very strong concern about something happening in the atmosphere back then. We came across this report from 2020, which listed countries like Australia and the US and other industrialized countries among the countries with the most climate denialists in the world. Why do you think there seem to be more climate denialists in the global north as compared to the global south? 
I studied the images of climate change deniers together with two colleagues from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. And actually, we found out there's a lot of literature on, on this topic. It's clear that this is a political cause. So this is very much uh, the idea of liberal politics, which is opposed to the idea that actually climate change forces people to do economy in a very different way. So you can say this is a conflict of goals. And so climate science deniers, they started to systematically, strategically fight against um, climate science in order to postpone all political um, reactions to the topic. And they have been really successful in the English-speaking countries, not so much in Germany. We have a little bit a different take on this issue. I, I actually recall having a conversation this other day with some journalists from Southern Africa. And most of us concurred that uh, news media images of climate change in the global south, they make it look like climate change is more miserable in the global south compared to what it is in countries in the global north. What are your thoughts on this? Do you agree? Sorry, just to add on that, it kind of goes back to our conversation before this podcast about, you know, drought in Namibia, what it looks like. You see the carcasses of dead animals, whereas in the north, I, I never knew there was a drought until you told me about a drought. So that just goes to show you the difference. Mm -hmm. So I think in the in the global north and especially the Western countries, we have a long tradition of climate determinism. So we are thinking about the temperate zones, like the perfect zones for the development of um, rich people, but also science and, and all these things. And I think this is still influencing us today. Climate determinism is a theory or an idea that the environment drives the development and transformation of a society and culture. That is, the environment is what determines whether a society fails or succeeds. Professor Schneider ties climate determinism into how Western societies, which include North America and Europe, sometimes perceive or approach the conversation around climate change. Historically, development has happened fast in Western societies. So when we apply climate determinism in theory, it means the physical environment has been the main reason as to why these societies have been able to develop faster and thrive. But when we follow through with this theory consistently and look at world history, can we really say that climate determinism made Western civilizations thrive and thrive fairly without disadvantaging other communities and societies or the environment? Just food for thought. So look at the word moderate. So the moderate zones, they are expecting moderate weather, not harmful weather. And in a way, this is still influencing the way we perceive climate change. So this is something to happen to other people elsewhere, to happen to people in the tropical zones, the, the hot zones. And in a way, at this moment, people in Germany, they are quite astonished that actually climate change unfolds that quickly now. I still remember going to an exhibition some years ago, I think five or six years ago, about catastrophes and in a historical perspective. And when they showed climate change, it was just at the very end of this exhibition, their image to depict climate change, and I would say it, it's a cynical way, but they just did it, was to show some bottles of wine. 
Back then, I was already very irritated by this image because in Germany, we have this story that actually climate change won't affect us. It will actually improve climate for Germans. So we have more regions to grow stuff like wine. It's true. It has been proven how warming temperatures can be advantageous for certain varieties in the wine industry. According to the Climate of the Past journal, temperatures have risen to the point where harvests now commence an average of 13 days earlier than they did before 1988. A 2020 article published in Wine Enthusiasts explains how grapes ripen quicker and easier because of warmer conditions. In turn, this lowers their acidity but increases their sugar. And if picked at the right time, wines are fuller, softer, fruitier, and with high levels of alcohol. Geographically speaking, the article mentions how successful vineyards have been found between 30 and 50 degrees latitude. But as global average temperatures rise, the most ideal areas to plant are moving farther from the equator. While some farmlands may benefit from climate change, others will struggle because of pests, droughts and floods. And so this is a very positive framing and it, I think this framing at this very moment, it breaks up, but you can see that actually the, the moderate zones, they, if I would you know, generalize this argument now, that they think they might not be the losers, maybe even the winners of climate change. And there, there's this old separation of the world into countries uh, which have actually also the, have a lot of experience in colonization mm. and the, the, the old Western worlds who still feel like they are on the better side of climate, like just by nature. Yeah. All right. So from a scientific point of view, is there any truth to this that climate change could actually uh, improve things for countries like Germany? So I c I'm not a climate scientist, but of course I read into the literature, like how, what do scientists prospect for Germany need to happen until the year 2050? And actually this, it's not getting better, even not in an average image. So Germany is expecting more droughts, less water, a lot of water fights also about water. And of course, there will also be more insects and forests uh, will suffer even more from heat waves. We will have a lot of, this is called the tropical nights. So nights in which actually the tempera temperature don't fall um, below very high degrees. So you might have like two weeks, three weeks in a row with really hot temperatures. And this is not typical at all for these climate zones. And actually also this, we have this very clear distinction of seasons and the seasons already changed a lot. They shifted. So the summer will get longer and longer. The winter will get shorter and warmer. The spring will be, will be really short. And so, for example, this May is a very untypical hot and dry May again in a series of years of four or five years. And so speaking from a scientific background, Germany will have a lot of problems about climate change and will have to prepare a lot for this. I don't know what it's actually called, the specific insect, but I know and I actually heard from another environmental activist that these specific insects, when they are on a tree, they sort of destroy the tree or something and the trees have to be cut down, which is actually a concern. Do you know how that works or just briefly mention 
So I don't know the name of this insect, I too, but um, actually there are many problems right now. For example, we have some trees who are really uh, who are suffering from the drought so that so they get really weak and of course this is if you have a monoculture of just one type of trees for a large region then uh, these insects come and have a really they do the rest this is how i would explain it mm. but we have also insects of course the zones for insects who are adapted to ho- warmer regions now these zones get larger so they start to migrate to to different zones there will also be issues like health issues connected to diseases which are brought by insects yeah yeah during our discussion again with the master students on monday at the university of potsdam one student in particular mentioned how the climate stories on our climate justice central blog brings out the social aspect of climate change or how humans are affected by it and how we sometimes cause it whereas her observation in german news media coverage is that it's numerical and statistics focused would you agree that you know that's what the focus is here in germany and why in your opinion is it that way mm-hmm. here yeah i'm i'm thinking about this a lot because maybe in germany the tradition of telling them about this subject for the last 10 or 20 years has been nature so the frame of thinking about climate change is suffering nature suffering landscapes agriculture lakes getting too hot dying animals also elsewhere polar bears etc so it's not about people it's not a social issue yet and so this idea the whole f- idea of climate justice is not very much at the center of telling these stories so normally if we tell climate stories it's nature stories icy regions polar regions and how ecologies suffer from climate change from ro- warming temperatures and i i just think this will change we had a huge flood last year so this is when actually social storytelling of course since then we have it related to climate change because this was quite an extreme event and very unexpected for the people who live in this region but still if we teach climate change to children at school it's like this is something happening to nature it's not happening to people that much and i think it's the opposite in a way then compared to what i read in your climate blog yeah is it valid then to say that climate change is invisible when so much is happening around us including now the floods and everything mm. what implications does it have when we say that it's invisible when we say that it's an invisible enemy when we have the data and the data visualization to back it up you know it's kind of ironic that we say it's invisible but all of the stuff is happening mm. around us in nature even to us yeah so i think this idea of climate change being invisible is a very scientific idea of the subject so in germany the, the subject is framed by the science paradigm and yes climate is invisible because it's average measurements and nobody can see the global temperature or feel the global average another the local average of german temperatures for one year or anything like this so in a way it's silencing this idea of um climate change being invisible because it's an abstract entity it's silencing all these experiences 
And I think this is also a political question, like who is allowed to claim that he or she actually is able to is aware of climate change. And I think it's very important to not only frame this issue scientifically. I know for science, it's important to make this difference between weather and climate. This is very important. And this difference also has been abused by climate science deniers in a very system blind way to conceal the relationship. But at the same time, I think we have to talk about these experiences because in Germany now they get also since four years or so, I would say they are quite visible now. You can go and see the last glaciers in the Alps, for example. They are just melting away. And this is a very strong experience. But also on a daily basis in the cities, you can see how trees suffer from climate change and how all these things are happening. On that note on politics, I'd like to know what are your experiences as academics when you now try to communicate that message that climate change is also happening in Germany, that when it actually reaches its climax, it's not going to be a good story. What are your experiences when you try and communicate that message to, to politicians in Germany? So I'm more the person who analyzes what happens when this is done, because I'm not a climate communicator myself. But what I, I'm observing that actually most of the German people, it's very clear that climate change is happening and that it's a very se severe problem and that it will change life in a profound way. And a lot of people share this concern on an everyday basis right now. So people... But it's, it's, again, it's related to nature experiences. So they, if you pay attention to these changes, if you find out about it, then you can see it everywhere. And people get really frustrated and um, concerned about it and even depressed about it. It's not abnormal. We are being shelled by news about climate change and seeing natural disasters happen around the world. It can trigger an onset of emotions for anybody. Although it's not a mental illness, climate anxiety is a state of being worried due to uncertainty of the future. People have also described it as a feeling of powerlessness. It's also been voiced by children and teenagers around the world. This is what a study published by The Lancet found. 59% of children and young people between the ages of 16 and 25 were very or extremely worried about climate change. 84% were at least moderately worried. More than 50% reported each of the following emotions. Sad, anxious, angry, powerless, helpless, and guilty. The best way to manage climate anxiety is to speak to people you are close to about your worries or join support groups. Another good way to counter climate anxiety is to make individual lifestyle changes like traveling less by airplane, cycling, driving electric, growing your food or educating yourself about green alternatives. What I can see is that actually also with uh, all we have a lot of young activists now and from the movement Fridays for Future and even especially young people, they really suffer from depressions because this subject has been communicated in, uh, in this global dimension on such a 
a scale. So people actually, these, our feelings start to fail in a way. It's something which is very hard to integrate on an emotional level. And this is what I'm seeing right now is that, that um, after the pandemic, people started to talk much more about climate psychology. Mm. And in Germany, we have this network of psychologists for future who offer a lot of help on this in this regard, how to stay uh, mentally healthy while knowing about all these issues on a local scale, but also on a global scale, because actually the story of climate change, it's not a hopeful story, but it can be overwhelming and it can make you very powerless. Yesterday we met an activist from Germany who had very strong feelings about the German government's decision to wait until 2038, if I'm not mistaken, until Germany can stop mining coal and move to renewable energy. What do you think about this? What's your mm. personal opinion of it? Uh, is 2038 too far or do you think it's enough time uh, for transition? What do you think? Of course it's too far. I've been looking into the German history of the last 30 years, how Germans were informed about the severeness of the topic back then. And since then, German politics tried to do something about it. They have one idea, that's so one target after the other. At the same time, not not enough has been done about the subject. So this question of why did this knowledge fail in Germany? We have all these institutes. We have a lot of research. We re, and actually all, already 30 years back, I think enough knowledge was there to p take political action. There was no reason not to take political action back then and would have been much more easy, much more time to reduce emission, emissions back then. But Germany didn't start it in a profound way. Mm. And in Germany, we like to tell the story that actually ecological and economic targets can be balanced out. And this is like what polit uh, I think on a political basis, is, this story is very important. So we want to believe that actually economic growth and people having work, of course, um, that can be balanced out, harmonized with environmental issues. And so this, we are still in this conflict. And we also want to believe that actually technology, the techno fix will save us. And so we have to see year after year, actually, this is not happening. So a lot has been done, but in the large picture, it's not enough. On the topic of politics, still very interesting because my perception of Germany, maybe it's because of the propaganda, right, was that it's this sustainable haven where so many solutions are coming out of the government and out of institutions with regard to climate change. But when I actually came into Germany, especially now when climate change is such a heavy topic, the, the sentiment is different. It's kind of a sinking feeling like our government isn't doing enough. So do you maybe think that the government has been piggybacking off of the fact that the world sees it as this, you know, it puts Germany on a pedestal mm -hmm. and it says, okay, Germany's doing so much because that's what they often sometimes say or like, you know, encourage in the media. You know, Germany's doing a lot towards climate change and sustainability. Mm -hmm. You know, we're focusing on these goals. And that's how I, as a foreigner, actually viewed Germany before this trip, you know. So this is goes together very well with 
with what I was just saying, like this idea of Germany being the sustainable country where technologies are developed to uh, do energy transition. And actually, we have so many windmills now. So this is might be a success story and solar panels and all these sponsorships, state government money for, for installing these things. But at the same time, the economic, the, the economical growth and the consumerism, it just went on. So we are using more technology. We are buying new cars. We are still building bigger airports, etc. So in a way, all these effectivity which was, of course, done by energy transition and all, all these things, it wasn't enough. So actually, Germans are consuming more and more energy, while at the same time, they are reducing, they are, they are improving the effectiveness of electricity. So in a way, so the, the idea of Germany being the sustainable country is, is also calming us, preventing us from doing more. Mm. All right. So your last message, Professor, to anyone who could be listening to this podcast, especially denialists. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, I gave up thinking that denialists can be convinced, actually, because I think from an anthropological perspective, it's just so fascinating that people, if they are in these different cosmologies, it's so hard to reach them. And I think it's very important to know about these different worldviews and cosmologies and to stay in dialogue and to keep talking about these issues, even though you are uh, in a different cosmology. So as soon as, uh, as it comes to action, I think it's very important that people stay in the dialogue and talk about this issue in many, many local ways. Thank you, Professor, for being here and we hope you enjoyed our discussion as much as we did. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right, there was Professor Schneider on the Climate Justice Central podcast talking about images of climate change with me, your host for today, Sharon Munjengema, and my co-host, Yukani Oliveira. Thank, Thank you, you so for much listening. for listening. Thanks for listening to the Climate Justice Central podcast. For more engaging stories, go to climatejusticecentral.org.